Welcome back to Open to Truth, a podcast all about exploring big ideas and discovering truth together. My name's Tony, and Clint and I feel honored to have our guests on today's show. Uh, These two have been luminaries for us in imagining what God is like, figuring out a theology centered around the love of God, as well as working out what the implications are for how we live and how we relate to others. Our guests today are Brad Jerzak and Paul Young. Now, Brad is the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University, and he's on core faculty for the Institute of Religion, Peace, and Justice. He's an author, and he recently co-authored a novella with our other guest, Paul Young. Now, Paul, you might know, he's the author of a very popular book, The Shack, uh, as well as Lies We Believe About God, which was a book Clinton and I found fascinating. We did an episode, a whole podcast episode on it back in episode two. Uh, And they have recently, Brad and Paul, written a novella together. It's called The Pastor, A Crisis. And man, it is a roller coaster of a journey. It's it's exciting, it's engaging, and ultimately it's healing. So I'd encourage you to pick up a copy. And uh, anyway, without further ado, here's our conversation with Brad and Paul. Well, welcome to the podcast, Brad and Paul. Glad to have you join us. We're honored to be here. Thanks for having us. Trying to swallow my... My protein bar. Yeah. <laughs> well, That's our a listeners, good cold opener. Yeah. Our, our listeners would have just heard about your bio and our intro, and you've co-authored a novella called The Pastor, A Crisis. Here it is behind us here. And boy, that was a roller coaster. So I just read it this past week, and I'd encourage our audience, I don't know if you guys agree, but read it in one sitting. Just blast this Devour. thing out in a couple of hours, three hours. And just, I was reading it in a Panera bread. And there, a there, public <laughs> setting. Okay. there were times where I laughed out loud yeah. and toward the end, ver- on the verge of weeping. Yeah. So real roller coaster of highs and lows. For me. We would highly encourage people to listen to the audio book first. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. The why audio book. Oh my gosh. So tell them, Brad, why is that? Yeah. Uh, Boyd Barrett, the director put together a full a full cast production. It is a. It is like the old-fashioned radio dramas where oh, it's great. Like we've got six voice voice actors who are magnificent. And what they do, Paul showed me this that that these actors are so passionate that they take you to a place where you, as a reader, are limited from going. You know, you can only imagine these characters with the resources you have in your own mind. Yeah. But they bring something else to it. So here, you know, Paul and I having written and read the book many times we're weeping as we're listening to it because wow. it's like oh my goodness so that's actually uh, uh um something you can also do probably in a three-hour sitting but it, it, it's just it's really worth getting even if you've read the hard copy it, yeah it is well, it, yeah. it is a healing journey for people who are listening just kind and of the, bring, and, brings it to life yeah the actors were fantastic and they got completely engaged and you can tell um and uh and you know you hear you listen differently than you read a lot of times when you read you still skip stuff Mm -hmm. and um you know and that's been that's been true about uh every book i've read and there's some it's a different experience to listen to it because you're allowed to just immerse yourself without doing the work Right. Yes. Can I ask, is there, is there music in the audiobook? Is there scoring as well that's going along to build atmosphere or emotion? Not really. There, there's just intro music at the beginning of each Little chapter. bumper stuff. Got it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, I, you know, I've been writing, I've been writing nonfiction for a long time. I think I've got, you know, 
18 works out there. Some mm -hmm. of them have been read. Um, <laughs> but it was always in my heart that I wanted to do fiction because I believe that that fiction is a more powerful delivery system for the truth because it gets past the watchful dragons of our rationalism and, and we identify with characters. And so a healing work can happen. I really wanted that. Um, I, I've dreamt of doing it since I was a little boy of seven. And and uh, and now I thought, okay, now now I want to do it. And so, you know, there was a genesis of a an idea in my heart about doing something like the pastor book, where we're we're, we're looking, taking a very hard and dark look at at uh, the underbelly of of uh, you know even sexual abuse, pastoral abuse, spiritual abuse, and all that, and how that implodes on a guy who's been using that as as kind of his own armor. Mm -hmm. But I thought, you know, I hate it when theologians write novels and it comes off as preachy or full of propaganda. So I really, I really wonder if, you know, Paul's an expert on storytelling and at not doing that. So I, I reached out to him and, and asked if he'd be willing to co-write something to ensure that it doesn't, right. that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> Cause I didn't want to put crap out there, you know? Right. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, thanks to his willingness to be, to co-write and to mentor me in this, I, I think we did pull it off and, and have written something beautiful together that is, uh, it's just such an incredible generosity on his part, but also we both get to have a lot of fun in the process. And I feel exactly the same way. That is in reverse. I think it's a great kindness to me to have been invited to participate in this. And it's, I mean, it's deepened our relationship. If, if that's the only purpose of this book, that would be great. But already the ripple effect. And you know, we have a friend who, who refers to this after reading it as this is brutally beautiful, mm -hmm. brutally beautiful. And, and you, since you've read it, you know exactly what she's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause it doesn't pull the punches. Right. Uh. And, and it's, and you know what, here's, and here's, in fact, I'll let Brad Bradley talk about this because this is part of the beauty of it is it's not just his and my compilation and creating of composite characters. These composite characters are rooted in real life. So Bradley. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, as reading, when I was reading it, there's just some details and specifics. I'm like, oh my gosh, how'd they even come up yeah. describing some of the darkest places in such a way it had to come from someone like you've encountered over the years that have shared a similar story with you or that's right that's exactly right there's an authenticity to it because the composite characters are made from this real life stories of people we've walked with even our own stories in some ways but you know some of the super brutal stuff both in terms of the abused and the abuser are friends of ours and right. in fact there are dialogues both in terms of uh the story, but even in their healing journey and their encounters with Christ that, that we're pulling straight out of our emails or out of our text messaging. And that wow. went into the novel with their permission. Wow. So when you're saying, Oh my goodness, does it get this dark? Is like, yes, it did. Yeah. And we're, we have, we had the freedom to report that through a mm. fictional piece. So, and it's not any one person either. We've got a number of people who, who contributed their life stories to this, um, including the woman we dedicated the book to, Jackie, uh, who's not the Jackie in the novel. In the book. Yeah. Um, 
some of her story comes out through Sage, some of her story comes out through the pastor, some of her, her story comes out through victims of the pastor and so mm -hmm. on. And so it's just, uh, uh, for, for us, there, some of the dark, raw beauty of it is what it is to be pastoral in this world with, with people who, for whatever reason, privileged us with hearing uh, you know, they're very fragile and vulnerable story, but also how the light shone into it. Yeah, I'm really curious why, I'm sure it's very intentional that you chose the main character to be the pastor. But I think as reading it, you might even wonder, like, could, could a different role have been chosen for this person? Why not a, the actor, the, well, bari the barista, the lawyer? Couldn't, couldn't anyone, wherever they find themselves, uh have like deep dark secrets and shame that they're confronting it's not limited to just no it, it could we, yeah the the question is is <clears throat> what is the best positioning for a character like this you know if you have a barista you don't have the level of betrayal that exists when you have somebody that's inside your soul's journey yeah right um somebody that would have been probably similar would have been a therapist, you know? Yeah. Or because the pastor sits in between the, the physical embodiment of our presence in this world and the spiritual relevance. And so they are granted a degree of authority in our lives that when that betrayal occurs, it's monumental. And, and, and they are an easy target. Mm -hmm. frankly uh, but they're because partly because they're put into positions that are untenable they mm -hmm. they shouldn't have to occupy that space between heaven and earth as a mediator you know and uh and and it's so um and somebody someone has already pointed this out to us that in a sense you could take a whole different layer of the pastor the story and say, doesn't the pastor represent Western evangelical Christianity embodied in mm -hmm. both the abusive side and the victim side and, hmm. and, and all of these things? And I think that's a totally legitimate way of approaching the storyline as well. So you got the, there's the, the, the trust element that's required in spirit, let's say someone who has spiritual authority you've got the power differential going on there so no you won't get this in a hairdresser but yeah there you we could have used other elements and yet i you know i and i'm saying this because i have a good friend who did very well in amway but you know there's kind of this trope about you know amway salesman well okay or the sleazy lawyer or yeah. uh you know, but to bring together power and religion and betrayal like that, um, yeah. probably, probably the pastor is the best placeholder for that. And, and also we both have experience as, as pastoral people. Well, that's, that's what I was going to ask is, so Clint and I are both on staff in ministry at a church as well, serving in pastoral roles. And so for me, as somebody who gets what it's like to be on the pastoral side of ministry, this book was like, yeah, just really, really powerful. And I'm wondering um, who, as you were writing this and coming up with it, who did you write it for? Was this, was this a book that you are hoping pastors who are similar to the pastor in this, who are feeling trapped and trying to fix everybody else, but not experiencing healing themselves. 
is this supposed to be a book that frees them? Is this a book for everybody? Did you have pastors in mind when you wrote it? Uh, maybe we could each answer that, uh, but I think we have the same answer. Okay. We wrote it. <clears throat> we we wrote it in order to to answer the question: Is there anyone who's irredeemable? Uh huh. And that means anybody out there who feels irredeemable, it's for them, mm-hmm. no matter what their story. And is there anyone who is too wounded to experience uh, the healing hand of Christ in their life? And yeah. so there are those who feel like. No, um, I'm, I'm not. I'm untouchable. I'm, I'm unhealable. I mean, so both, both those who um, have been uh, perpetrators and victims can think that the gospel is a platitude, and in fact, the way it's been preached would be for right. many of them. And we're saying, actually, no, um, that the that there is nothing that the blood of Christ cannot wash. There's no stain it can't cleanse. There's no wound it can't heal. Mm. Um, it's not a McDonald's drive through As you can see, it's a hellish journey. But we deeply believe that God is up to that. And that's, that's, that's partly why we named it the pastor a crisis. Because crisis is the Greek word for judgment. One of the Greek words for judgment. And, and we think that the fire of God's judgment is the necessary love to destroy all that which is in us that is not of love's kind, right? And so, uh, you know, we, we, had, we had a response from the Hispanic side of the conversation about the pastor, and, and they said, no, you need to understand that anyone who reads this will resonate. This is a book for everyone. Mm-hmm. So um, and we weren't thinking that way, but but this person who's in publishing said no no you don't understand bradley okay yeah so if you don't mind we're not going to spoil like the main plot lines of the book i really encourage our readers to go out and get their own copy in the audiobook but there are just a few lines like throughout that i'd love to get your feedback on and just dive into a little bit more uh so uh, on page 57 uh, the pastor, I mean, throughout at least the first half, is saying a lot of things revolving around hellfire, brimstone preaching, uh, very judgmental. At one point, to kind of catch him in a little word trap, a character intentionally misquotes Jesus to see if the pastor would agree with it. And she says, so I do condemn you, go and sin no more. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's like, absolutely, that's what I'm saying. And of course, Jesus was saying, I, I don't condemn you, yeah. go and sin no more. And I just, for me, that felt like the starkest moment where he's clearly got it totally wrong about Jesus to the point of now he's, you know, accepted a portion of scripture that right. you know, he's got it completely backwards. And I'm just wondering, um, eat his, what I took away from that portion was, his shame and secrets have manifested all the way up to the point where he's just even engaged in self-contradictoriness and all this. I just want, I just want you guys to speak to how does that happen in each of our lives? I mean, it's not just freaked out pastors in a psychiatric ward, which is what the book's all about, but can't that happen in, in each of our lives where things that we tamp down and bury bubble to the surface and manifest to the point where we're 
believing in some way. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that came out right. Yeah, no, that's, I totally get what you're saying. Bradley, tell them about um, our friend who is the runner. You know, oh, the run, yeah, and her response. Yeah, so our, we, have a, we have a friend who, um, she grew up in a very troubled background, a uh, series of foster homes and all of the worst things that can happen there. She would relate to the women in the story. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, out of that, she you know, the little bit of one way to get a little bit of control is you develop an eating disorder because it's the one thing no one can make you do, you know? And so in her version of it is very extreme where uh, if she has a a snack, her, her anorexia will tell her you need to run this off. And so she could have two cookies and need to go for a marathon. Right. Hmm. And, uh, and it's just really disturbing. So she's, she just listened to the pastor and she's out on a run. She's halfway through the run and she stops and she texts me and, and she said something like this, that, so first of all, she, she was, she said, I was upset because I hated the pastor and I, I knew where you were going and, (laughs) and and then I was going to love the pastor, but here's the weird thing. She said, if I could love the pastor, then maybe I could learn to love me. And it uh, went down to, and she's never been a perpetrator except of yep. her own demise. And yet it raised, an, uh, there was an invitation to the possibility hmm. that she could even come to love herself. If I could love the perpetrator, does that mean maybe, maybe there's, you know, I could love me. And, that, and that's begun, uh, Paul doesn't know about this, but that began a daily practice of listening to Jesus and receiving his love. And Uh, one of the things he spoke to her immediately was this, here's what you're going to do. You're going to let me love you. Wow. And so she sends me, um, she sends me snapshots of her daily journal, just where she's fighting to let Jesus love her day after day after day. And so we'll see where it goes, but it was this really strange thing where even self-hatred, yeah. could be healed. Yeah, I, so I'd love to follow up on that. So I'm sure you guys are familiar with Richard Raw, who talks about the, the need to accept that you are accepted. And um, I, the, I also had a quote I wanted to, from the book I wanted to read, that talks about this interplay between loving others and, and loving yourself or forgiving others and forgiving yourself and how those two things relate. Because as someone who grew up in fundamentalist evangelical circles, self-love was not something that was really encouraged for me anyway, growing up. It was sort of like that you want to avoid love of self at all costs, love others, but, but you're a dirty wretch kind of thing and don't think too highly of yourself. And so the, the notion of coming to love myself has felt taboo in some ways. I feel like I'm behaving out of line. So I want to read this quote and then I'd love to hear any thoughts or have you guys expand on that. Um, why don't you, why don't you feel forgiveness because you don't know grace because you still haven't resigned as your own judge. When you let go of the gavel and start forgiving yourself, I can't, I want to, but I don't know how it always seems to come down to this. What if you're not the piece of shit you think you are? That was shame talking the adversary, the accuser grace says, while you are still love's enemy, she forgave you and deserve has nothing to do with it. 
Would you guys be able to speak to that? How, how forgiving others and forgiving ourselves maybe go hand in hand and is loving ourselves as Christians something that we should do? That's a great question. And, and it totally ties into to what you were asking earlier in your question. And that is, how does this happen? You know, <clears throat> as, as a person thinks in their heart about the truth of their being and the reality of who they are, so becomes the way of their being. Mm. Right? So, so your view of your ontology or the truth of who you are, then will be expressed. So if you think you're a piece of shit, you'll not only let people treat you like one, but you'll act like one right. ultimately. And then spirituality becomes a cover so that people don't find out you're a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But where does that come <laughs> from? That's good. It, it comes from a fundamental belief that you have been taught and told that that's the truth of your being. And we not only got it from abuse or from bullying or from abandonment or from life struggles, but we got that message from absent parents or present parents, and we got it from our theology. And a lot of us in the Western tradition, we think the truth of our being is that we are a piece of crap, worthless, mm -hmm. no good, totally depraved, uh, with a fallen sin nature that, you know, yeah. that's what we believe. And so because we believe it, then everything else tumbles out of that. And, and the confrontation is, it's not true. Well, if it's not true, then everything has to change. And, and uh, I, was, I was with a young man who had hurt somebody that I care for very deeply. And, and, and um, first he was blaming, and then we got past that. Uh, because, you know. That's, I mean, almost like the pastor does initially, right? And, and then he says, I'm, I'm, all I am is a piece of shit. That's ex his exact words. And my response to him in the Holy Spirit was, if there's anybody on this planet who knows that you're not just a piece of shit, it's me. Mm. But you are full of shit. <laughs> great. That's great. i got to start using that. <laughs> well, but you understand what... And when I said it, I knew like, oh, thank you, Holy Spirit. You know, like, because what I'm doing is I'm saying, you got your ontology wrong. Yeah. And if you've got your ontology wrong, everything else is going to be wrong. And if your ontology says that, that I'm a piece of crap, that Jesus has to cover me with his, you know, we have this really bad view of, of imputed righteousness, right? Um, and there is an imputation that is legitimate, but it's not what we have defined it as mm -hmm. you know jesus covers me so that he can sneak me past god the father who's under the law and uh in order to get me into heaven yeah and and so <laughs> when when we're dealing when we're dealing with this thing about love it is a foreign concept to us because we really believe that at the core of our being we're not worthy of it yeah or we haven't earned enough of doing the right things but then every every infraction that is um, a, a deviation from perfection becomes the accusation of the truth of our being as piece of shit. Yeah. Right. Wow. And, yeah. And, and so then it just explodes from there. And then when somebody says, well, you've got to learn to love yourself, it's like, how, how is that even a possibility? And so then we say, well, to do that would be an act of pride. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. Is, 
which is now we've got another deviation that inhibits us from the very thing that's going to heal our hearts. Now, can I just press in for a second here? Because, uh, well, maybe I, maybe I misread the book, but there, were, there was a moment in there or maybe a couple of chapters where the pastor is, is justifiably being confronted with the ways he was monstrous in the past. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so it's not this like skimming over the surface, like, oh, I'm just going to forgive myself and I'm No I'm big good deal. To go. Yeah. Like part of the meaningful journey of reading that was kind of recognizing ways that I've been monstrous in the past. I remember sitting in the Panera for like 30 minutes, just staring ahead, thinking of ways that I All had ways you've... screwed up in the yeah. past. Now, but then is that, so is that the accuser saying that I'm not worthy or can it be the Holy Spirit reminding me like, Hey, look, you, you have been wicked and monstrous in the past, but at the same time, you are worthy of love and I still love you. Can you kind of sort through that mess for me? I'm, I'm confused. I need no, help that's good. That's good. I think your perception's spot on Bradley. <laughs> oh, you want me to address that? I do. I do understand. Like as a child, before we had communion, we would have to examine ourselves, and what that seemed to be was an open door, a, a green light to just welcome the accuser to come pummel us. Wow, that's one thing. Um, yeah, it's another to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is the mercy seat of Christ. And do a fearless moral inventory, as the 12 steppers talk about it, in the presence of pure love. Yeah. And that pure love is a fire that must be far more thorough than the accuser. What the accuser wants to do is, well, one thing is to lead you into self-hate rather than on a redemptive path. But another thing the accuser does is um, overwhelms me so that I exit my fearless moral inventory and go into denial. So I would say up front, what we have, the upfront part is who are we standing before? Who are we in whose fire are we? And think about it like the oh, really like that. three That's boys great. in Daniel, where I enter the fiery furnace of truth with the son of God. And he, he's the one holding my feet to the fire, but there's this clear sense that he's not burning my feet. He's burning off my attachments, my chains, the things that bind me. And, and that, that is utterly thorough and so so it's not like accusation and then love Mm -hmm. it is that love itself is is this intense examiner and uh and and that means like uh surrendering to that process um i don't i suppose you could you could confuse them i suppose we did confuse them as young evangelicals examining ourselves with the accuser right Mm -hmm. Um, but this feels different than that. Uh, Paul, yeah. do you have a, a way lot, to assert? Yeah, a lot of the accusation comes from our own set of presuppositions in terms of what we believe about the truth of our being. It's not like the accuser comes from outside. We're the accuser. We're sitting in the seat of judgment. We're saying we're unworthy of being loved, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that accusation arises from inside. Here's the line. The unexposed is the unhealed. The unexposed is the unhealed, and the Holy Spirit has come to expose the world. The Greek word to convict is the word to expose. Mm. And when you hear a passage like, while everything you've done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops, we, in our shame-based 
low view of ourselves, low view of humanity, we hear something like that as a promise of humiliation. Yeah. When like there'll be this video screen in heaven where everyone yeah, has to it's a wash big back chick, my life. <laughs> big chick track, yeah. <laughs> it, what it really is is a promise of redemption because the unexposed is the unhealed. And for you to have all of your crap shouted from the rooftops means you're free. You're free. Because yeah. as long as you keep it buried inside, it continues to work its poisons. And, and so the unexposed is the unhealed. And a lot of the work of the Holy Spirit is to expose. I think we're in a year, 2020 is a year of exposure of all kinds of crap that is below the surface, mm -hmm. right? And suddenly we don't have the, the, the high-paced busyness that allows us to continue to escape from facing ourselves, right? But here's, here's the other point. The fire of God is never against us. It is the fire that is opposed to everything in us that is not of love's kind, mm -hmm. which is every lie and every delusion that we believe ourselves that prevents us from absolutely falling back into the arms and the embrace of relentless affection. Wow. Because that is the truth of God, which means so many things have got to be challenged in that journey. We've, we've got this exposure thing. I mean, it's, it, it, there's such a dark version of it that looks like um, public humiliation that leads to cancel culture. That's not it. I think of it almost like um, Christ takes, you know how cameras used to work when you'd have a roll of film and you, he just unrolls the whole thing. Yeah and exposes it to the sunlight. And what does that do? It, it like washes, it washes it. There's a, it's a, it's, it cleanses the images right off the thing, but it's- By light. By light. <laughs> and so that's what Paul's talking about by freedom. Like he, Paul Young's been very um, uh, explicit in, in his confession through the years from the front. And so it's like, that's why he's so free. He's got no secrets. <laughs> Can I ask how, how much of that process happens uh, solo versus how much is a gift that we can offer another person? So Clinton and I are like best friends on the planet. And one of the things that is so valuable about our relationship is he knows some of the darkest things about me and will listen to me with a straight face. You know, he doesn't recoil in horror as I show him the darkness that, that is in me at times but I'm met with acceptance and love. And there's, I think, a healing that comes from that. Is that, is that necessary? You talk about confession. What, what is the role of confession? Do we need to be sitting down with somebody and, and telling them, here's what's going on in me? Or is it me in my bedroom alone with Jesus? Or both? Or both. Um, let me tell you how I do confession. I'm in an Orthodox tradition, and it's not like you imagine. He grew so, up in a in a Western evangelical tradition. Oh, right. so. Yeah, I grew up in a in a, in an evangelical church where confession was often just between me and Jesus, or with your accountability partner, which was a weird form of moralism. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Now what I do, I go to a confessor, and his job is not to not to think about my guilt. His job, he asks me this: What's troubling you? Mm. And the reason he asks it this way is because what's going on in my heart is that. I am in a, uh, when I stumble, and it may not even be into sin it could, as such, but it, like in terms of behavior, but I stumble into anxiety, I stumble into worry, I stumble into pride, I stumble whatever. 
my conscience then is an, he would say, your conscience is an infallible judge. It becomes your accuser. And so now um, my, my conscience and I are at odds. Mm. There's, a, there's a split there. And so the confessor's job is to reconcile me to my accusing conscience by reminding my conscience of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. So he says, what's troubling you? Okay, I'm mean to my wife again today. You know, and then he would say, okay, well, here's the thing. Um, your conscience is accusing you. Don't let that cause you to go hide in the garden like Adam and Eve. Come home to the Father's house and orient yourself towards the good news that he's already forgiven you. So forgiveness and make it, I don't need to make myself right with God. I'm already right with God. That's my ontology. He, his unconditional love and acceptance and welcome. My problem is that because of my accusing conscience, I'm off hiding somewhere and running yeah. from it or in denial. And so the gospel welcomes me back into that orientation towards mercy. And I'm like, oh, I feel so much better. And, and my conscience then can stop accusing me. In fact, it's out of control if it's got on the judgment seat itself. And that's what the book means when we talk about resigning as judge. What that means is that your conscience, which is meant to be a voice inside calling you back to the father's house. Sometimes it decides I'm going to get up on the judgment seat. I'm going to take the throne. And, and then it's like, wait a minute, you don't belong there. You're mm -hmm. in fact, you're dangerous there. I cannot trust you to come with the verdict of mercy that I always hear when Jesus is there. So, and then if there's amends to do, he might say, he might say, okay, good. So we get up as quickly as we can. We move forward in the presence of Jesus. We say yes to the good news of the gospel and our conscience is cleansed. Now, if you need to also go make amends to your wife, you should go do that. And, and so that's how I process it um, yeah. with another person. The issue for me is when I, I can do some of that myself, but when I try to do it myself, I get stuck in the self-loathing, mm -hmm. yep. which clicks into self-pity, which is just an kind of ego, my ego in dialogue, self-hatred, yep. self-loathing, self-pity. And it's like these puppets talking back and forth. And my confessor says that that's not what's going on. Um, what's going on is, is, is you need to come back to grace because it's, it's never left you in the first place. So that's one way to think about it. Yeah, that's yeah. really helpful. That's, that's what happened to me in the Panera. Yeah. Some, you had some puppetry going on. I did have yeah. puppetry. Um, <laughs> another fantastic quote, and just to dial in a little bit on this notion of that's your ontology. You guys have both said that at some point. Um, on page 60, a character asked the pastor, something broke. So on the inside, who will I find? A pastor who's exhausted, and wants to be someone else or someone else who's been trying to be the pastor. And it just gets at these issues of identity. Who am I really? What is it that's deep down what I am? I read that like four times. Right. <laughs> just that same passage. I tried to figure out yeah. for myself. I was looking in myself. Yeah. Who, um, who will I find? Could you tease out this that um, distinction that that character is trying to have the pastor entertain? Paul, go for it. So... Um, a number of years ago, I picked up a, a line from Baxter Kruger, and he had said it on the fly, and it's now the major centerpiece of a, a book I'm working on right now. 
and it and the line is this wholeness or holiness wholeness is when the way of your being is a true expression of the truth of your being uh, when the when the way of your being how you live your life is an expression is in line with the truth of your being so the big question is what's the truth of your being which is what sure. that passage is saying yeah you know so what's the truth of your being and a lot of us we didn't have any idea other than the fact that we were totally depraved and worthless and and it was you know thank god that god is two different kinds of people and jesus is a good one you know <laughs> and, and, right. oh, and so yeah. jesus has come to save me from god the father and um and but the the question of identity and and this is something that i've been working on an awful lot and i've i've come to the conclusion that because people go like, and I could ask you, when you hear the phrase, you're made in the image and likeness of God, what do you hear? Because mm. frankly, you're either a piece of garbage that was born in sin and totally depraved and a piece of crap, right? Or if, that, if that's the truth of your being, then nothing really changes it. And hopefully you die sooner than later before you really screw up bad enough not to make it. And then, you know, but everything's a cover up and you feel like a fake. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no matter what you do, every righteous act is covering up the fact that you really know the truth about who you are. So secrets become the place where you, where you hide the best. And, um, and, but if, it, if that's not the truth of your being, if the truth of your being is you're made in the image and likeness of God, what does that mean? And that's, I could ask you and say, so when somebody says you're made in the image and likeness of God, what does that actually mean to you? Huh. And, and most people would see it as God is sort of a sculptor hmm. who, who makes a sculpture, a sculpture and, and it's like that's, that's you. And he puts into it commodities like we'll put in kindness and, and, and joy and all the fruit of the spirit and stuff like that. But that imagery is, is separated imagery, right? The sculptor creates the sculpture mm -hmm. and it's separated. And, and so what is the image and likeness of God? It's Jesus. In other words, you cannot begin to understand the truth of your being apart from your union with Jesus. Because Jesus is the image and likeness of God. So when you're made in the image and likeness of God, it is not something that was done to you, uh, separated from God. It is only because you're in union with God. And then your uniqueness is just icing on the cake. Your history, your tradition, your genetics, your background, all of that becomes the landscape in which the truth of your being, which is your union with Jesus, actually expresses itself. Right? Wow. So the, I know it's a wow. It's a huge wow. <laughs> I've been carrying an anemic view of the Imago Dei for a while, I think. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. a lot of us think of it in ideological terms, you know, right. or philosophical terms. Yeah. And I'm saying, no, you, you don't even begin to, you know, apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, I was crucified with Christ. Why? Because he, he's, he dwells in every single human being. He mm -hmm. is the Imago Dei in every single human being. And he doesn't dwell within you as 
I am joining the good thing with the bad thing. Yeah, yeah, right. right, right. You're, you're a very good creation, and that's the truth. Wow. And, and you, are the, you are a good um, union with the Father's Son. And everything that is true about Jesus is therefore inextricably true about you. So the truth of your being is that you are patient, not because you have patience apart from the present indwelling Jesus, but you have patience because it is embedded in you by the presence of the indwelling living Jesus. And therefore, when you say, what is my identity? You're patient, you're kind, you have self-control, you're pure of heart. But a lot of us, see, we're trying to get the Imago Dei so that it becomes a, something that we can then attach to ourselves to live out from, yeah. right? And, and or, you know, we're trying to get the right behavior so that, that we become more like the Imago Dei, you know? Right, and it's right. Like, yeah, and, and this is what destroyed my addiction to porn, this very thing. This understanding? Yes, this, this opening of the inside eyes, because... Here, I thought I hated my addiction to porn. I mean, I hated it. Anybody that's addicted to porn, they, the, the amount of self-loathing that is a part of that and the recommitments and the let's try this again and take another <laughs> run at it. And let's, okay, let me, I'll try a quiet time again. And, um, right, you know, time. what, what, because <laughs> I'm not Pentecostal. So, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I do the quiet thing. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, you know, and, and it, but I haven't had an issue now for almost 30 years at all. Why? Yeah, why? Because I, because I got so scared of hell, you know, that finally yeah. the, the reality of, of the idea of eternal conscious torment was so, no, that never helped, you know? Yeah, yeah. Is, it, is it because I, I have self-discipline? No, self-discipline is a work of the flesh, the false self, right? Self-control comes from the inside out. Self-discipline always comes from the outside in. So is it because I found an accountability group, you know? No, it was the- Triple X Church. Yeah, it wasn't Triple X Church. The Black Boy, yeah, that's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I had, I had a, um, an algorithm that was too good for me to crack, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and uh, but that doesn't change how you see yourself or how you live from the inside out until the Holy Spirit opens up your eyes and says, do you know that everything that is true about Jesus is true about you? And that, that Jesus is in absolute inextricable union with you. Apart from him, you, don't, you can't even exist. In fact, if he was not intertwined as, and, and, and not in any kind of dictatorial way, but as the servant God who submits to your choices, mm. that you, you would lapse into non-being. The very fact that you're asking this question is evidence of the indwelling reality of the Father's Son in union with you and and everything is union first before expression so there has to be ontology before existential experience and so as a person thinks in their heart even if they think what they think is an absolute lie the way of their being then becomes an expression of what they think even if how do you make that how do you make that journey paul uh, it seems like some have tried to, I, I know folks who even teach what you're saying, um, 
but somehow for them, they're in this idea of the way the truth is they're being their ontology. It feels like it doesn't get to the way of their being because they're talking about it in rational terms rather than in relational and revelational terms. That's the deal. Like that, right? That's the deal. We're talking so we, about, yeah, we're talking about an actual relationship here. So think about second Corinthians three, what it says is this, um, and I want to run this by you, Paul. It's, I think about image and likeness is ontology and existence. So I have the, I, I am the image of God, the, the image of Jesus Christ in me. That's the truth of my being. He's my ontology. He's the image. The way of my being doesn't look very much like him some days. So it's like the truth of my being is restoring the, is, is going to transform the way of my being. The, the image of Christ in me is going to restore my likeness to that in real life. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of second Corinthians three is like, so, so not just like think about this better. It's that, that as we turn to the Lord, we all with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, which is the exact nature. uh, uh, We are being, we are being, Yep. Transfigured is the literal word he uses. You're being transfigured from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. It's like, wait a minute. So I have the image, but now the image is becoming the likeness as the spirit of the Lord is transfiguring me through that beholding with the inner eyes or something. Does that correct, work? Correct. Correct. Yes, absolutely. And here's, you're not being transformed from cruddy to glory mm. or from glory to glorier. <laughs> right it's like the ontology is solid that is the truth of your being and your behavior doesn't change the truth of your being it covers it up it 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 obscures it in your own sight and so the the work of the holy spirit is to reveal the truth to you who is jesus right and as that revelation occurs it naturally flows into the way of your being because as a person thinks in their heart, this is the definition of sin, ha martia, ha negation of meros, form or origin or being. So sin is not a violation of behavior. It's not, a, it's not the way of, the, it's not focused on the way of your being. It's a focused on a denial of the truth of your being. Wow. So sin is an ontological issue, you know, and that's why shame is so, is such an enemy. You know, and is, is another name for, for the great Satan, right? Because shame is a direct attack against your ontology or the truth of your being. Guilt is a statement about the way of your being. Sin, missing the mark of not behavior or perfection of behavior, missing the mark of the revelation of the truth of who you are, who is Christ in you, Right? Yeah. That also, and it, it it distorts your image of God as well. So you have uh, you know Adam turning in the garden, and in that turning, from his shame emerges an image of God from whom he must hide. Right. Yes. When yeah. had God ever expressed anything that required us to hide from Him? Where did that image of God come from? Came out of this. It was fashioned just as God fashioned Adam out of the dust. Now, Adam fashions a false image of God out of his shame. Wow. Yep. And he fashions an an accuser named Satan out of his need for self-loathing and self-condemnation to be the judge. 
Say more about that. What do you mean the need to be the judge? Is that something we, that people manifest? Yeah. And oh yes, you know. So so the accuser is something that. Oh, let me let me back up even more. Did the loss of ontology arise out of the presence of a character named Satan? Did the loss of ontology arise out of a, a of the person of the woman. Eight times in the New Testament, sin entered the cosmos through one man, Adam. And, and in the Genesis story, that happens before the participation with the fruit, that whole fruit scene. Hmm. It happens before. It happens for Adam in the first not good. Because nothing that is not good originates from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you've got this very clear sequences of good, 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 when it comes to the human creation, very good, very beautiful, very complete, very whole. And then it is mm -hmm. not good in the Hebrew is it is not good that Adam be in his separation. That's the turning. And she's not even withdrawn out of him. In fact, part of the reason she is withdrawn is so that he can find another face-to-face -face that will call him back to his humanity, which he has turned away from because he's turned away from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is he alone? Absolutely not. Hmm. Is God not good? Absolutely not. But when he has turned his back toward light, he has cast his own shadow. And from that shadow becomes everything that now accuses him. And then he transfers that onto her. Hmm. And that the whole fruit scene then becomes a setup in which he participates with his own darkness by making an accusation against the goodness of God and a judgment against her. And so this it, is best learned in narrative, by the way, which yep. you can pick up in the book called Eve by Paul Young. Okay. Oh, fantastic. It's all, it's all in there in, in an incredible uh, story form. And if we're plugging books, I've been reading Brad's newest book, A More Christ-Like Word. And yeah. it is such an important book for us. And uh, when, it, when it comes out, I mean, I'm just like blown away about how clear and helpful and pastoral at the same time as intelligent that it is. And so... When's that coming out, Brad? Next May. So, next May, okay. You know, get the so, pastor first, get Eve. Yeah. Paul's writing a book on <laughs> ontology right now. It, you guys are busy. Like, yep. uh, COVID is helping us get some work <laughs> yeah, done. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So just in the, as we kind of wrap up, and the terminology we've been using about um, like letting the Holy Spirit do its work on us and be accepting of God's acceptance over and above just having someone just listen to the audiobook while they're doing yard work or just reading it. How would you encourage a reader to use the book to perform that, that healing function? Anything that you would recommend a reader to do or prepare for as they would like a practice that goes along with it or something yeah. you mean? Yeah. Well, I, personally, I'd say just, first of all, undergo the story, you know, the way fiction calls us into the story and we begin to identify with characters, let that happen. And, um, and you, you will see 
questions, even like the ones you had today, will emerge naturally. So I, I wouldn't want to take a, a utilitarian view of the book, but I am saying if if you enter the story and, and uh, let it speak to you, it's it'll be like um, someone in the story or the story itself will take you by the hand and it may lead you to un, out of stuckness. Mm. So there's a kind of uh, a surrender involved in that. And if if you want to be mindful, be mindful of where you're resisting that too. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. the girl, the runner girl, initially she's resisting because it's like, I don't, I don't want to love. And, and so she's resisting that. And then when she gives herself over to being able to love the pastor, suddenly what sprang up inexplicably was the possibility of loving herself. Now, I, there's no way I could have prepared her for that or even imagined it would have gone there. But I uh, trust that as you undergo the story that the spirits at work through real people's stories who are coming alongside you as guides on um, out of quagmire or onto a good path or whatever. What do you think, Paul? I am Bradley. I want you to talk about um, surrender is on the one side, which you mentioned, but also encounter and, and, generally speaking for those of us who come out of very conservative evangelical backgrounds we don't we don't do encounter very well we have to learn how to yeah go go to the place that is safe inside of ourselves where jesus meets us most easily well easily. can i be can i be just honest here like a moment of realness um, please confess it'll be healing <laughs> well confession is just telling the okay. truth so yeah. yeah okay the truth was toward the end of the book and like the pastor's in a certain kind of state where it seems like there's some audible voices that he's hearing, like really having a conversation with some figures that seem to be divine in nature. I'm trying not to spoil things, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I found myself a little bit jealous almost of the pastor's situation that he is having this opportunity to hear so clearly from ah. the divine and oh my god i i wish jealous, i jealous <laughs> jealous is the right word here not envious oh. right because there's a big difference between jealousy and envy jealous okay. i may have been en envious i don't know Let's no 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 okay. you were you were actually truthfully jealous because jealousy is about something that actually belongs to you envy is about something that doesn't belong to you that's why Dude, god is that's awesome wow god, <laughs> god is a jealous god but never an envious god right? Because he is jealous for you because you belong to him. Yeah. Right. Hmm. He's not, he's not envious that you belong to somebody else. Right. Yeah. And so, so when you say I was jealous, you're actually telling the truth because that kind of encounter belongs to you. Yeah. And now hey, the question is what has inhibited it, Bradley? Yeah. So I, I want to express how we got there with the real people the book is about because yeah. they all got there. And while I do that, Paul, could you pull up the text about from Jackie about the abortions? Yes. Okay. And so I'll give a backstory. So when we, when we talk about dialogue with God, which is a very real thing for us, uh, we have moved past a kind of prayer life that is just telling God what we want or need or think into listening. And it, and it's not all, it's, it's not so much like a charismatic prophetic thing so much. It is, it's a 
contemplative listening to the still small voice. But here's how we do it with very, very broken people. And then we found out it's not just for very, very broken people. This is the inheritance of every Christian. Here's how I do it. I say, if you could have a meeting with God, an encounter, a connection, anywhere at all, where you would feel perfectly safe, where would you have it? And, and people go, oh, I, I'd, I'd meet him by a beach, or I'd meet him on a mountain, or I'd meet him in my favorite prayer room, or I'd meet him in a cave, or I'd, I'm like, that's awesome. And if God were to come to you there, uh, how would he come to you? Does he come as father, as friend, as light, as lion, as lamb? You know, um, but, but if you're able, can he come to you as Jesus? And, and they're like, yeah, okay. And, and I'm like, so where is he? in that picture. So now they're imagining, except they're not really imagining. They're, yeah, entering, right. they're entering their heart where he already is waiting for them. And then I say, you know, what expression do you see on his face? Um, can you come close enough that he would touch you? Um, what's the very first thing that he says to you? And so uh, when we first encountered Jackie, um, I met her, I met her in a, in a, inner healing clinical encounter. And I was there as an assistant to the, to the minister. And um, we spent the first half day just doing that. So we said, okay. Um, and I'll give you an example. It's from somebody else. It's like, uh, um, say, so if you could meet God anywhere at all, where would he be? Oh, I, I see him under a tree. He's sitting under a tree and he's waiting for me. Okay. Can you move towards him? Yes. And they just begin sobbing. I'm like, why are you sobbing? Because he's so kind. He's so beautiful. He's so gracious. I'm like, well, what did you think he'd be like? And this person said, uh, I thought he'd be harsh and condemning and critical. You know, like Christians. <laughs> <laughs> and this person's not a Christian. Yeah. And here, okay, so now they see Jesus under a tree waiting for them. Where is this happening? It's happening in their heart. Mm. So I get up closer and I say, I say, so as you get closer, what expression do you see in his face? What are his eyes telling you? And she says, uh, his eyes say, I know. And now she's really crying. And, and I care. That's just what his eyes are saying. I said, and so then I said, what's the very first thing he tells you? And, uh, and Jesus speaks to her in her heart. I've been waiting here your whole life. Um, waiting under the tree of life in her heart for her to come. And so that was a mind blower. Well, so now with Jackie, we did the same thing. And then from that place, we were able to begin to visit places of her deepest wounding. Um, maybe I'll give the backstory and then Paul, you can read the text. Yeah. Yep. 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 So, I mean, here's a woman I've, I've her permission to, to share this with anybody that it will help. In fact, she just texted me, Paul. Oh, wow. I will surrender each day, each hour, each minute to Jesus will for my life. She just said that, Come but it's, on. but it's because of, she, of course she did. Yeah. Of course she did. And it, but she only can do that because someone whose, whose trust was shattered has met him. Right. Mm -hmm. So we took her to a safe place like this. And then in that safe place, she began to engage with the deep wounds of her heart that included uh, regular sexual abuse and rapes by her father all through her childhood. In fact, from before her time of her memories. Um, out of that, she developed dissociative identity disorder. I'm also friends with some of her parts, especially a precious little one named Eve. 
Um, she also developed a 30-year drug addiction. She's now 1,000 days sober oh, wow. after 30 years of uh, injections. But also from there, it flipped into anorexia that's gone on and off. And uh, sadly, uh, she, her stomach's not taking food again, Paul. So uh, oh. as of yesterday, she was down to uh, 68 pounds. This is a woman in her 50s. And oh she may not make it. Stage four kidney failure. Um, and food is passing through her. And, and, and uh, But you know what? And, and, and part of that is because her dad would abuse her while feeding her things like dog food or... Are you or, serious? Yeah, yeah. No, he this was is, absolutely psychotic. It's worse. This is, real, this is real world stuff. This is why we wrote The Pastor. Yeah. So, so in, and included in that, he impregnated her twice and then he took her to the abortion clinic to have the abortions and she was so full of... So you can imagine <sighs> why she's trying to numb out and die yeah yeah, right that's what the drugs are about that's what the anorexia is about that's why she can't keep food in her mouth because of other things he put in there yeah and and uh but then she meets jesus and and so maybe paul you can tell the whole story about that that it's so important you guys it's worth the time it is so so brad and i bradley and i we're we're in eastern oregon doing something for open table and um and Brad gets a text from Jackie and, and Jackie, um, it wasn't a text. It was a phone call, right? It, you were on the phone with Jackie. Bit, bit of both, bit of both. Yeah. Bit of both. Yeah. And she is calling <laughs> to say, say goodbye. At that time she was down to 66 pounds and, yeah. and, and she was done. And the reason that she was calling to say goodbye, that she was done is that she had gone online and she had seen a video about what happens to babies in utero who are, which are aborted the, the tearing apart of their bodies and everything else and she had never known that but it was a it was a christian presentation trying to scare people out of abortions right yeah, and yeah. um and shame them out of abortions and and it so horrified her that it pushed her to the place where she was irredeemable at right. that point, right? And so, but she, she loves Bradley and Bradley has been able to walk her into a constant relationship where she meets with Jesus. And, um, and uh, she's calling to say goodbye. And I'm there with Bradley while this conversation's going on and Bradley is caught in the emotions and, and I hear him say this, I hear him say, Jackie, I want you to know that I am absolutely opposed to the decision that you're about to make, but I honor you for having the power and the authority to make it. In other words, he, he is validating her ability to choose. I mean, we have a God who's pro-choice, right? Or else relationship is not even possible. Right. We, but we have a God who's pro-life, apart from which relationship is not possible, right? And, and so this really tense moment, and, and she's like, I'm done. I'm done. And he's, he's validating, as he, his heart is breaking, he's validating her ability to make the choice because he's empowering her. 
And he's saying, can you just go back to Jesus? Can you just go meet with Jesus? And she's like, no. The shame is so deep and so powerful mm -hmm. that she just can't, can't do it. And so she says goodbye and hangs up. And Brad goes to me, he says, I think she's, I think she's done. I think she's gone. About a minute later, he gets a phone call from Eve, the five-year-old split. Oh, wow. That, that we as evangelical fundamentalists used to try to cast out, yeah? Right, right. And, and Eve, the five-year-old, is going, and she says, Brad, Bradley, please don't give a, up on us yet. And, and, and Bradley goes, but Eve, I can't get her to go meet with Jesus. And he says, yeah, I know, I can't, I can't either. And then Bradley goes, but wait, wait, why don't you go meet with Jesus and ask Jesus what to do? And Eve goes, oh, I can do that, and hangs up. That is wild. A half an hour later, we get this text from Jackie. Because whatever Jesus told Jackie, uh, whatever Jesus told Eve, Eve went back and told Jackie, and Jackie went, it was enough for Jackie to go meet with Jesus. Wow. Right? This is what Jackie writes. I went to Jesus and I literally fell to my knees and I sobbed. I couldn't look at him because that's what shame does. It always drives us away, right? Drives us towards isolation, drives us towards the darkness. We pray with our eyes lowered and onto the ground because of shame historically and um and we and you know you've known if you've gotten caught in something and shame whispers you're a piece of crap that you can't even look at the person and uh because our eyes are drawn away and so she couldn't said i couldn't look at him he put his hand in the back of my head as i crouched at the floor at his feet he said look at my eyes I said, I can't. I did the worst thing someone could ever do. He said, look up, I have something to show you. So I finally looked up and on Jesus' lap sat two little girls who were about two years old. They were dressed in different colors, but their dresses were the same, a baby pink and a lavender. They looked like me at that age, only way more beautiful. And their eyes shone with joy and peace. And he told me their names were joy and love. I asked, is that them? He said, yes. They grew, but they never passed two. They seemed to like this age. They're always together, always. They don't know pain, and they never have. Pain in the sense of suffering. I cried, and I cried, and I said, how is that possible after what I did to them, after what I did? He said, you did nothing wrong. I said, I sobbed. Yes, I did. I hurt them. I killed them. He said, you didn't kill them. I saved them. Before they felt pain, I took them from your womb, and they've been with me ever since. I said, but I made the decision to kill them. He said, you were in the most painful time of your life. You didn't decide to kill them. I chose to take them 
It was my choice. He said, I knew one day you would find this out and we would have to talk. I always knew you would come to me no matter how ashamed you were. I know you love me. I am the savior of your soul. He said, I want to love, I want you to love yourself. You're way too hard on yourself. You forget what suffering you were living every day. I'm pleased you came to me. You don't ever have to be afraid to. I said, please forgive me, Jesus. He said, there's not one thing you need forgiveness from, not one thing. Now come and meet our precious little ones. So I touched their little hands and I kissed their cheeks and then they ran away carefree with some angels. And Jesus said, come to me. Climb up on my lap and let me love you. Cry on my robe. I'll heal your broken heart. I'm sorry for what you went through. I know. And I always loved you every single day. So cry now, but don't cry for the babies or from shame. Cry as you forgive yourself. And I will show you and help you see your true, beautiful, loving heart. I am proud of you and I love you always. And when you're done crying, you will see over time that all is well and you'll be able to feel it and accept it and the hatred you feel for yourself will drift away. My gift to you is anytime you want to see any of your babies, you can come to me and we'll play together. All you have to do is ask. And please thank Eve. She led you back to me and thank Bradley for his undying faith in me that encourages you to continually come to me. He also has been my gift to you and to Eve. I sobbed. Thank you, my Jesus. Thank you, my Jesus. Jeez. That's a text you got? Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> so if, if you're jealous of that, I have such good news for you. You can have it too. That is the kind of living connection that is your inheritance, not even as a Christian, but as a human being. Human being. And I, I, I have a how-to thing you can, that just walks you through it all. Um, so if you were to Google the meeting place, facilitating encounters with God, Brad Jersak, I've got the step-by-step -step guide that oh, great. basically are um, the way we approach people like her. And you can see the dramatic fruit of, she is not in a head game there. Um, some might wonder, like, is that real? It's like, then the the noose was really around her neck right and then the noose really came off her neck the self-hatred was going to murder her and then jesus came and exposed and cleansed that and 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 if he'll do that for her and certainly he'll do it for anybody and where do you think jesus lives if he lives in you, where do you think? Like in your pancreas, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's in your total embodied humanity. That includes your imagination. That includes your rational thinking skills. That includes your ability to feel things. Hmm. You know, the, the presence of Jesus by the Holy Spirit is in all of you. You know, one of the martyrs, you know, Teresa of Avila or Joan of Arc when she was being about to be burned at the stake, they said one of the accusations was you just you just hear God in your imagination and she goes like where else do you think I'm supposed to hear him you know yeah. and and there's 
we have to begin to take the risk of trusting that Christ dwells in us. I mean, that this is an ontological reality, not some kind of a mythical thing. Yeah. When, when, when a lot of my friends who have been trafficked, my, the women that I know, when they first start to meet with Jesus, it's so interesting that oftentimes Jesus comes to them as a Labrador retriever. Really? Because they can't trust men who have abused them or women who have not protected them. Yeah. And so Jesus comes to them, or God the Father comes to them as a Labrador retriever. And sometimes they don't even know who that is at first. They just know they're safe with this, mm. this puppy or this dog. And, um, and it is and, playful, yeah. friendly, loyal. Yeah. You just go through it and you're like, oh, this is an image of the character of God. But he yep. can't be a dog, Paul. He can be a cat with big fangs and a mane, but he can be a lamb, right? But he, and he can be an eagle, but can he be a lab? Absolutely. Absolutely. He can be a dyslexic dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you said that was called The Meeting Place, Facilitating Encounters with God by Brad Jozak. Yes. Yeah, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, and it's a PDF. It's just two or three pages, but it's questions, and you just... Yep. Um, and and uh, it is the foundation. I, it, it's a great foundation that we have seen people put on front of almost any counseling model. Mm -hmm. But it's also just my daily prayer life. <clears throat> yeah, it's a spiritual discipline. And it seems yeah. like the, the barrier to entry there for a spiritual discipline is pretty low. Like, you, you don't have to go off and do a 30-day silent retreat, or fast for a week. It's like, right. you could do this this afternoon. You could oh, yeah, sit the down foundation's and do already there yeah. when Christ said it is finished. Yeah, like, right. Paradise has been reopened. Um, yeah. The angel and with the it, sword's gone. And it does not depend on a conversion experience whatsoever. Mm. Right. It yeah. doesn't, it's not magic. It's relationship. Yeah, right. No, that's so um, good, you guys. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to have to process this episode for like a, <laughs> a couple of weeks. I'm going to rewatch it, re-listen. It's a far cry from notes. praying so that it doesn't rain at the church picnic. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Good land. <In> there. <laughs> Done that. <laughs> well, well, boy, I don't know. Let's, let's just leave it at that. That's, that's a good stopping point, I think. And um, yeah, we'll put all the things that you guys mentioned here in our show notes. And yeah, just really appreciate you taking the time to come on and share with our listeners. I know for a fact that many of them I've never heard something like that. So yes. Yeah. yeah this will really be, important. this will be great. Thank you so much for the time guys. Really, really oh, appreciate it. Yeah. Our we're, pleasure. We're honored to be a part of, of anything. It's a two way street. I, I obviously needed to, to hear some of these things this morning. So mm -hmm. thank, thank you for giving us the space to do that. Yeah. No worries. Alrighty. We'll take care guys. We'll see you next time. Thanks much for watching. Love, to you. love you, Paul. Love you too, bud. <laughs>